Welcome to the November Ramsey uh, Luncheon. This is the first time in our 30 years that we've had three uh, speakers and 350 guests, which speaks to... which speaks to the huge interest in, well, in what? In the arts, in architecture, urban renewal, rock star CEOs, the competition amongst them. One thing I do know is that there's not another city on earth that has so many attractions rising up in the same place at the same time. In addition to the Art Gallery of Ontario, the Royal Ontario Museum, the Festival Centre and the Opera House next door, ka-ching for half a billion dollars, there is the Royal Conservatory, the National Ballet School, the Gardner Museum, plus the Ontario Science Centre, possibly the Hummingbird Centre and the Toronto Symphony Orchestra, and recently Roy Thompson Hall, for a grand total ka-ching ka-ching of over a billion dollars. Sure, New York and Boston are also planning billion-dollar extreme uh, makeovers, but Toronto's doing it. What happened? <clears throat> Wasn't Toronto supposed to be on the ropes? Weren't we the world-class uh, wannabes? Well, it seems a new generation of smart, rich, generous uh, citizens, plus their corporate uh, connections, managed to browbeat a few well, uh, governments, into submission. <clears throat> As the Globe and Mail noted this morning, the amount of private money has been so huge that government support is now below the 40% threshold Queen's Park and Ottawa agreed would be their maximum uh, contribution. Then came the architects, both wild and uh, domestic. But before all these... <laughs> But before all these came their boards and their CEOs who said, we have this vision, we may not have the money, but hey, let's dare do this impossible thing. And they are. Today we have three of Canada's, or rather three of the world's, most daring risk takers, discussing the very large bets they've placed on the future and on our future as well. Which begs the question they're here to answer today, what will their projects, their risks, and the arts look like after all those doors are open? <clears throat> I'm not going to say much about the uh, speakers because you already know them. The frenzy of their renown is clear for all to see. Because time is tight, however, I'm going to offer these rules of engagement. Each speaker will have 10 minutes at this podium. We'll begin with Matthew uh, Teitelbaum from the Art Gallery of Ontario, then move to William Thorsell from the Royal Ontario Museum, and end with Piers Handling from the Toronto International Film Festival Group. Then I will invite all three to come to this table here to answer questions. If you have a question, could you please go to one of the two uh, microphones, one over there and one there, to ask your question because this is being taped for, uh, for uh, broadcast on TVO. One word to the speakers. If you reach 10 minutes and you're still talking, I will use this Made in Canada high-tech device to warn you, <laughs> then to halt you. And to all of you, please join me now in welcoming our first speaker, Matthew Teitelbaum.
want to tell you why today, more than most days, it's a special privilege for William and Pierce and I to be here leading three of Canada's great cultural institutions. Yesterday's announcement of the Canada Council was fabulous. We also have a city with a visionary culture plan that's really going to lead this city in terms of the kinds of experiences we're going to offer to our citizens. We have a volunteer and business community that's doing this incredible festival for the arts, planning in the next two years. We have the Toronto Community Foundation doing something really remarkable with the subways along University, the great avenue of the arts, a plan to actually re-engage uh, subway planning with the three cultural institutions along University Avenue. And together, this notion that the city can really be something it's never been before, a city imagined through culture. And um, I want to begin by telling you this story. I was in Los Angeles for a meeting of international museum directors. We were talking about that issue around looted art, antiquities, ancient art, the Getty, the Met, all of that. Uh, a subject for a future Ramsey lunch, I think. Um, and we started in a subgroup of North American museum directors by asking each other what it was that brought us into our professions and what made us feel special about the contributions we could make. And Philippe de Montebello, the director of the Metropolitan Museum, uh, said, and it is a very deep thing because it's the sort of thing that I think every day. He said, you know, and he's 70 years old and he's the dean of our profession. He said, what keeps me going and what connects me is that when I walk to work in the morning and I see the expanse of the Metropolitan Museum, I think that I have a leadership role in taking this institution forward. And that's a very powerful idea for me as a Toronto-born leader of a cultural institution to come to work every day and look at an institution in change and feeling I'm doing my part in helping to recreate it for the future. That Philippe also felt that was deeply interesting to me. And when I finish my remarks, I'm going to tell you what I said about my connection to my profession. So I'm not going to actually talk about the AGO project as such. But if you go on our website, you'll know that we're, you know, 40% increase for the uh, space that we're using to present art, that 17%, not 5% of our collection is going to be fully on view. A transformation project that begins with content, and we're, I think, quite articulate and passionate about making that point. So check into our website and you'll know a lot about our project if you don't already. But I'm here because I think that these three institutions that are represented here today are part of a moment in Toronto that has not existed before. And that moment is a city that's imagining itself through culture. A city that's actually growing and giving all of us a language to talk about the place we live through the institutions, the cultural institutions uh, that we're building. And if we do it right, and I have to say, I believe we will, we will create institutions that will be in the envy of the world. And our premier, who is also incidentally the Minister for Innovation, talks about new ideas, about ambition, about reaching, when he says, we can only achieve great things when we work and dream and build together for change. To fully develop our economic advantage, Ontario must be first in the innovation race, the first to discover new ideas. And if you look beyond the architecture of our projects, and enough has been talked about of the architecture, and we're going to continue to talk about the architecture, but when you go beyond 
the architecture. It is about the race towards new and innovative uh, ideas. Mr. Mayur says a similar thing when she says cultural tourism plays a vital role in the province's tourism industry. By rebuilding audiences, we will strengthen cultural organizations, tourism, and the economy, and provide the people of Ontario with a quality of life that's second to none. And it's that quality of life issue that I think is leading governments, incredible leadership donors in our community and elsewhere to support these projects because they realize how vital art is to the quality of life. So I have statistics here. I'm going to read just a couple of them. The Canadian Arts Coalition tells us that culture creates more than 600,000 jobs for Canadians and generates more than $39 billion in annual revenues. Over the last decade, Ontario witnessed an 18% increase in cultural sector jobs. There are other statistics I could use as well to make the point that culture makes good economic sense. But I actually want to um, uh, go somewhere else with my closing remarks, um, which are to talk to you about what I said to my colleagues around that museum director's table about the value proposition of museums. <clears throat> and what I said was, there are two magical moments that happen for me in my profession. One is when a curator comes to me and says, I've learned this about a work of art. I've learned this new connection about a particular moment in history that connects to this moment. I've just discovered a new work of art. And the, the, the pleasure and intense feeling about that discovery. That's one moment. And God, it feels great. And the other moment is when somebody who's come to the Art Gallery of Ontario and has had an incredible experience tells me what their art experience meant to them, why it mattered, and uses language to try and explain and, and passionately explains how it changed the way in which uh, they see the world, which at its most intense level, that's what art does. And I said that for me, what gets me coming to work every day is as a director of an institution is bringing those two things together. How do you take the passion of the, of the, of the expert and the excitement of the visitor and make that a meeting point? How do you actually create that moment in your institution where people are feeling invited into the act of interpretation, into the act of creativity? And I don't have this. I mean, my, my, my professional life is about trying to figure out that connection because that's why we're building our buildings. And we're building our buildings, incidentally, because we believe in great architecture, you can enhance that experience, and you can. I happen to feel that particularly about Frank Gehry. Um, but uh, I think it's also true about the other great architects who are working in Toronto, that great architects bring some magnifying glass to that experience of interpretation and creativity that takes place in our cultural institutions. We uh, have a whole bunch of school kids that come on a daily basis for tours and for our gallery classes. Uh, one of these 12-year-old kids, Omar Kesro, uh, just recently moved to Canada from Afghanistan. Um, he's one of more than 6,000 children each year that take art classes. 
And um, we asked what the art classes at the art gallery meant to him. And he said, in Afghanistan, I couldn't go to school. I couldn't draw or paint freely. The AGO has opened a window for my imagination. Art has become my tool for expressing my feelings. And I want to say again, that is, an, th that is the expression of what I try and do as a director, is to bring people into experience of art and into their experience that they can transform their own sense of the world. And then I might also add, give them, through their experiences at the art gallery, a way to connect with others and exchange in cultural dialogue a more complex view of our world. I'm happy and pleased to be here. I think you pay us all tribute uh, by being here in such numbers. Um, I can say on behalf of Piers and William, we won't let you down. Uh, we're involved in a great adventure for our city, and um, we're thrilled that you're part of it. Thank you very much. And on time, too. Um, I'd now like to welcome William Thorsell. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. Every city has its resonance, and obviously looking at this crowd, I think we should be very excited today at, at the resonance in this city, to have you here in this number and diversity and the, and the roles you play and context of these cultural institutions says something wonderful about Toronto, which has uh, woken up and is feeling its oats, and I think it's tremendously encouraging to us all who are working on these projects to see this kind of resonance. Uh, not every city has it. I was just in my hometown of Edmonton. It doesn't have that kind of residence. Toronto certainly does. I'm going to speak about Renaissance Rome because it's a case study uh, that illustrates something about all of these projects, I think, and just so that there's a, a kind of a sense of understanding, as Bob says, of where did these come from, where are they going, and how are we going to sustain them. Uh, the Rom is our inheritance. It's about 100 years old, opened in 1914, and it's very unusual in a couple of respects. First of all, it's one of the few remaining universal museums of culture in the world. A universal museum of culture, meaning that it covers all cultures and all ages and all parts of the world at all, and all times. Most, uh, most museums are now focusing down on a period of history, a, geogra a geographical area, but the British Museum, the Met, the uh, V&A, the ROM, are among the universal museums of culture, a 19th century ideal, very interesting, one cosmopolitan, quite eclectic, um, and I think quite relevant to Canada today, given that uh, there are echoes of all the people coming to Canada in some central place. That's, that's one thing that's interesting. It's also a leading museum of natural history under the same roof with great collections that go right back to the Cambrian explosion, the Big Bang of life 520 million years ago, and the Burgess Shales, right up through the extinctions to the dinosaurs, one of the great collections of dinosaurs, and then into modern biodiversity with lots of research going on at the same time. Now, you never have the combination of a universal museum of culture under the same roof as a major museum of natural history on the corner of a, of a great city. It's like the Smithsonian all put down together within one set of walls. And it's a brilliant, daunting, and wonderful inheritance that we have in these two great collections and the way that they talk to each other. Because nowadays we understand that culture and nature are not entirely separate things. They actually overlap, they affect each other, and this is our inheritance. However, 
we have some problems there coming out of the last 30 years at the Rome. Many underutilized assets. Many of these collections are completely stranded and invisible. You don't know that they're there. Uh, among them, Canadian First Peoples, Canadian Historical Art, Modern Design, Japan, Africa, Central and South America, Cyprus, Bronze Age Greece, Asia Pacific, costumes, textiles, much of South and West Asia, um, early fossil record of life, and much of dinosaurs. All of those things are in the vaults. Many of them you haven't seen in generations. And those assets we owe to the world to bring forth in Toronto so everybody can come and, and engage with them. We have significant heritage architecture, but it was largely degraded in the 1970s. Something went wrong in the 70s. Disco, orange, brown, all that carpet, and terrible renovations of buildings. Drop the ceilings, put the walls on the window, uh, paint everything black, put linoleum down on oak floors, make little dark rooms. Uh, all of that has to be reversed. We have excellent location in the ROM, a wonderful, perhaps the best single location in the country, in urban Canada, on the corner of Queen, Queen's Park, Bloor Avenue Road. Uh, the ROM, uh, and when you looked at it, uh, said, well, we'll have a moat on Bloor and we'll have a cliff on Queen's Park. We won't use that location. That, that is there to be used. The, the wonderful J.K. ROM restaurant faced north across to the ugly buildings rather than south down to the city. Um, and we've had West Secular decline in operational support for the ROM for 15 years. Every year the government support for operations goes down, continues to go down as is common to other institutions. Very low market penetration, declining use of the ROM in re re relation to the city. And therefore, a tremendous opportunity for revival. All those wonderful assets, all those wonderful underutilized things, brought, if brought together, lined up together and brought forward, a tremendous opportunity for revival in a city that is worldly, curious, intellectually interesting and wants this kind of uh, agent of art, science, social integration to emerge in their city. So Renaissance ROM is really a venture capital project. $233 million capital project that is going to enhance the value of the ROM to the point that we can generate a lot more operating revenue to reverse that decline in our operational revenue and reinvest in the intellectual capital of the ROM. Hire back curators to go to stranded collections, hire back people to do public programs and so forth. Our business plan looking ahead when we started this said we can, after we build this, uh, we can generate another $11 million a year in the marketplace. Our cost will be around $8 million a year. We'll have $3 million left and we can start hiring people back and curators and so forth. How is that plan, uh, uh, you know, how solid is the plan? Well, when you look at the very low market penetration, the very low role of the ROM uh, that it got to in the 80s, 90s, uh, if we just got to, I'm using language here, you know, average market penetration of the ROM, we can add a half a million people easily. And we can meet that business plan. I don't have any doubts about that. So the issue becomes, on the cost side, are we really going to be able to bring it in fast enough and, uh, and within its budget so that we don't eat up that surplus to carry ourselves forward? Well, how are we doing? Uh, our current status, we've raised about $186 million of the $233 million. Not too bad. $30 million from Ontario, $30 million from Canada, $117 million from the private sector for our building, another $9 million for endowments. That's pretty good. 
Uh, we're falling a little short on that essential and wonderful government funding that we want 20% from each of those two governments. We're down to about 15, but I think that they are listening to us, as you read in the papers today, to come back up to 20%, which would resolve a great deal of the remaining issues there. And, of course, our campaign is still full, full, uh, full ahead steam. We have uh, 20 or $30 million to raise in that campaign. It's a fantastic campaign, 80 people on the cabinet chaired by Hillary Weston. They already have raised 100% of their original goal, more than 100% of their original goal. Uh, they were supposed to raise $110 million in five years. They raised $117 million in three. So they've raised the goal to $140 million. So we have, we're going to continue doing that because we need to do that. The... Uh, the project is within 10% of its base building budget. Not too bad for a very interesting com complex of heritage renovation and dramatic new architecture by Daniel Liebskind. And so our current imperatives here are to, uh, to uh, work with our government partners to sustain that 2020 part of their part, to uh, get our second wave of philanthropy to fill in their part, and of course to find out whether we can still get leverage out of that wonderful planetarium site there at the south end of the Rhine. <laughs> I remain confident on the business plan going forward. I remain confident on the broader support that we're building with our philanthropic community because these projects are generating deeper, broader philanthropic support that will be there in the future, shifting to endowments and programs. Uh, I, I believe that we're going to, as, uh, as uh, Matthew said, as a group, uh, it, by accident in a sense, recreate a whole new web in Toronto that won't stop at the buildings but will program together, will market together, will have events in each other's buildings. The TSO is playing at the ROM, we're going to be doing with the RCM things and the AGO. Uh, we're building a new uh, understanding of what a great cultural web and network is in a city. Um, we need to get, I think, stable provincial and federal funding going forward, and then we can take care of ourselves. Last thing to say, the majority of the funds for all of these projects in Toronto, all of them, is coming from the private sector. The governments are absolutely critical in founding them, giving the seed, but the majority of every one of these projects is coming from the private sector for capital, and it will be so for operations before very long. It's an incredible tribute to the community of Toronto and Ontario and beyond that we can say that and it is a wonderful thing for the creativity of the institutions to have the liberty, the scope, the elbow room to be able to go out and do the things they're going. Not, not to have to ask permission in great institutions to hire great architects, to go into great new developments of programming, to have the autonomy and yet the support of the public sector and then turn around and find a community like you sitting there saying yes is a wonderful thing to say about a city and a country. So thank you so much. Thank you very much, William. I now invite Piers Handling from the Toronto International Film Festival Group. Piers. Hello, everyone. I tried to negotiate some extra time before I stepped on stage with Matthew, but he decided to play hardball with me. Um, so I didn't get those extra minutes, so I'll try and rush through this as quickly as I can. Coming last, of course, some of the other people have said some of the things you want to say, um, and I'll, I will echo them. I think I am as I feel immensely privileged to be a part of this cultural renaissance as well to share the stage with William and Matthew and I know that the others that um, Bob mentioned in his opening remarks are not here who are engaged in these projects from the Opera Company, the Conservatory Soul Pepper, the National Ballet School, the Gardner Museum, Roy Thompson Hall, etc., etc., all share in this excitement. 
So why are these projects important? Bob asked the question right off the top. We can point to the economic benefits, to city building, to the fact that our buildings will attract tourists. Richard Florida has persuasively argued that the cities of the future need a strong cultural component to attract the creative class of knowledge workers who assess where they want to live through things like schools, hospitals, roads, and yes, cultural opportunities. I also think we need oases where we can reflect and dream and think and be transported and yes, learn much of what Matthew just said. If there are two things I want you to take away from my 10 minutes or eight minutes that's left, it's this. An answer to why the film festival group needs a building, number one, and what are we gonna put into that building? These guys have buildings, we don't, so we're sort of starting from zero. <laughs> so here's the why. Our new building is only a means to an end. It is not an end in itself. Bruce Kuwabara, our architect, said that architecture is only meaningful when it comes into contact with people. Our vision is simple. It's to inspire people by transforming the way they see the world. Film, the moving image, is the most pervasive and powerful tool of mass communication ever invented. The moving image is everywhere, in our homes, on our computers, in our streets, and now on our cell phones. And some of us even take the time to go to a cineplex. We are also in the middle of an economic revolution. Technology and communications, and communications are becoming the new economy of highly industrialized countries, replacing traditional manufacturing and resource-based industries. The new high-tech communications economy demands creativity, flexibility, and an ability to synthesize information and knowledge. We're also moving from a word-based culture to an image-based culture rather rapidly, and I don't need to tell you guys this, you just have to look and, and see what your children are doing every night. They're involved in new ways of understanding the world, part word-based, part image-based. The film festival group fits right into this transformation. We want to be an organization that plays a central role in understanding this image culture. We want to be a center of inquiry for the general public, for our youth, for children, and for filmmakers. We want to be a Toronto institution, as well as an institution that reaches out to the world. That is, its international reach, that's international in both its reach and its interests. The film festival is a 10-day event, so why do we need a building? Well, we've been more than a 10-day organization for over 15 years, running year-round programming of all kinds. Our Cinematheque presents 400 films annually at the AGO. Sprockets, our children's film festival, is one of the most important of its kind in the world. We have a huge library and archive of film-related materials. We produce books, CD-ROMs, study guides, and engage in outreach and educational activities for youth and adults and for the industry. Year-round activities with this kind of impact and relevance require a building, just like any university, museum, or gallery. Centers of learning will be crucial to our future. Start thinking of us as the Oxford, Harvard, and Queens of film and the moving image. Our goal is to be the most important cultural film organization in the world that has impact and is relevant, that celebrates Canadians and creative artists engaged in film from all over the world. So now to the second part. What can you expect to see in Festival Centre? The public will be at the centre. The building will bring the public and artists together. I think we've shown that we can do this at the festival in a pretty dynamic way. We are committed to replicating this unique encounter in our new building. 
will host the best and brightest of filmmakers, producers, and artists from Canada and around the world. Seminars, lectures, workshops, conversations, conferences will animate Festival Centre. We will show films, past and present, and also the future of the medium in four state-of-the-art cinemas. Our Learning Centre and Educational Screening Room will present a galaxy of programs for children, teens, and adults. Hands-on, interactive. Our gallery will be an incubator of ideas through its exhibitions. Our partnership with Bell, who are naming the building, will allow us to harness all the new technologies and future te technologies for our mission. Festival Centre will be a local and international destination. We want to bring the world to Toronto and Toronto to the world. So it's not just about the building. That's the dream. Let me just ground it a little bit in the way that both Matthew and William have. Just to use one example, over the last two years, we have shown films that deal with AIDS in Africa, the genocide in Rwanda, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, environmental issues in Tanzania, female circumcision in Senegal. General Romeo Dallaire, all the filmmakers who made these films, and the brave Paul Rusabagina, who inspired the film Hotel Rwanda, and was played by Don Cheadle in that film, we're all here in Toronto interacting with our public. To me, that's inspiring and educational. And that's just from Africa. I won't go into the films from Latin America, from Europe, from Asia, all those films and filmmakers who have come to Toronto to support our activities. That's what we want to capture in our new building, that kind of excitement. There's some donors and partners here in the room today who are obviously working with us to, to realize this dream. I'd just like to thank them, provincial and federal governments, Bell, corporate sponsors, some of the individuals who have stepped to the table. I look forward to seeing you all in Festival Centre. And thank you again for the opportunity, uh, along with William and, um, and, and um, Matthew, to represent the arts. <laughs> I got that minute, though. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's just true. To represent the arts community, we really feel that we're just a part of a, of a renaissance in this city, as, as uh, William said, that's just extraordinary, that's uh, galvanizing the city in a very, very exciting way, and we hope that we do you proud in the next uh, coming years. Thank you very much. As I said, I'll ask all three speakers to come up and sit at the table here. And if you have questions, can you please go to one of the two microphones here? Uh, but while you're doing that, why don't I ask the founder's question? Um, my question is, uh, we've been so outward looking to the world for our examples of where we find greatness. Um, and this is, this is a question any or all of you can answer. Do you have any evidence yet that the world is starting to pay any attention to us in terms of the arts and our vision of the future? Matthew? Um, I'm, I'm now going to speak from the AGO's point of view. Yes, the architecture and Frank Gehry and the notion of spectacular space for the experience of art is of a lot of interest to my colleagues around the world in terms of trying to understand what this architect might do with a public institution. So that's very high level. 
uh, interest. There's extraordinary interest in the con what I call the content proposition at the AGO. Um, uh, there are very few moments when you can make uh, the director of the Louvre, the Hermitage, and the Met jealous at the same time. Um, but uh, when one of your patrons buys a painting for $117 million, it works. Um, so I think the content proposition uh, has captured a lot of attention, and people are looking to the AGO to think about what we're going to do with this great opportunity. You know, I think that the it's the, it's the kind of mass of it all, all happening at the same time, and the diversity of the institutions. We haven't mentioned the Ismaili Center, the Aga Khan Center that's coming out at Winford Park, $200 million in addition, and Soul Pepper and all the rest. It's the coincident development of, at, uh, and with very diverse kinds of institutions, um, very ambitious, very competent, uh, filled with substance at the same time that has Serge Royal writing in La Presse that, oh my gosh, Toronto is going to be the cultural center instead of Montreal, set the whole city abuzz over there. It's inconceivable in Montreal that could be true. But I think, I think that it's this, it's this tremendous critical mass at the same time. And you have to go back and say, why at the same time? And I think there's one thing that needs to be said. It started with the government of Ontario. It started with a program called Superbuild that had $300 million available for uh, for cultural and recreational institutions. And it, and, it, and it ended there with a decision by the government of Ontario to focus some of that funds on some of the big uh, centers of excellence, not just make it dispersed all over the place. That was an absolutely critical moment. And then the decision by the government of Canada, despite various rules and traditions, that they would, they would match it. And they finally worked out matching it for six or seven institutions, incredibly important. And that's it all started on the deadline for application, April 12, 2001. We were all on the stairs of the same building with our big applications. That's why you're all being asked by everybody at the same time to, to support them, uh, which is one challenge. But on the other hand, think about how wonderful it is that it is happening at the same time because it generates a wave that changes the sense of reality. So I think that's, that's really going to be seen in the next year or two as all these things start to open their doors. I guess we're in a very different situation um, than the art gallery and the museum because we're dealing with a blank map to a certain extent. Um, there are no other similar institutions around the world that have a building of the kind that we're imagining here. Um, there's a couple. I shouldn't say there's none. Um, the British Film Institute, the South Bank in London, Cinematheque Francaise in uh, Paris, Torino has a wonderful film museum, Melbourne. But to a certain extent, um, we're venturing into new territory, and I think that's very, very exciting, and that has certainly gathered the attention of the world. Um, I think internationally they're looking to us. In terms of, of com what we're trying to combine in this building, it's not just screening rooms, it's also um, in a total environment. We're going to have a gallery uh, that allow us to do uh, show exhibitions. Uh, we'll have an educational learning center for children and youth. Um, we want to animate the building year-round with a whole series of programs for the public as well as for the industry. Um, and there's just nothing like this anywhere in the world. And um, so that's very, very exciting for us. It's kind of frightening in a way because we don't have the examples of the galleries and the museums. Um, they can look to, to precedents. They can look to other galleries and museums to see what have been, has been done there and what's worked there. And we're trying to work that out right now. Very exciting for us and our architect, um, Bruce. And, uh, and that's been tremendously, tremendously uh, exciting. But 
because the film festival attracts such international attention, um, those people are very aware of our plans and ideas. And so within that world, not just the world of the film festival, cinematex, film museums, film galleries, et cetera, et cetera, I know that they're certainly looking to Toronto and what, what we can accomplish here and what we can do. You know what we're going to do? We're going to change the rules a little here because it's going to be awkward and time-consuming. And don't you feel badly for all those people standing in line waiting to ask a question? Why don't you just ask the question and I will repeat it? So actually we have somebody at the mic here and then second. So you can all sit down and raise your hands and ask your question. Go ahead, sir. Uh, my name is Vaughn Kalolian and I'm also very excited about what's happening in Toronto. It's, it truly is a renaissance. Uh, but I wonder if, uh, in the midst of all this excitement, if perhaps we're missing one great opportunity. And uh, I'd like to refer to our, uh, the beautiful natural traits that this city offers. I'm thinking of the waterfront. I'm thinking of Downsview Park. Uh, I don't understand why we don't have our own Sydney Opera House on our waterfront. How could we, as Torontonians, get you great institutions uh, to work more closely with the architectural community, with the urban planning community, uh, to turn some of these uh, urban traits into true marvels. I, I just have to say about these issues. I think you know, it's it's a good thing to take this beyond these things and say what, what's happening to the city. It has to do with process design. You know, when you have bad process design, it's hard to get good outcomes. When you look at the waterfront issue, even the current efforts, it's bad process design in my view. You have an un, unrealized machine. The machine is not well designed to deliver the outcome. You know, we don't have the right connection of uh, authority and resources and discretion available to people to go and do it. One of the reasons that these things are all working so well is because they, they, they have an autonomy, they have, they're, they're, there's a coherent process, there's accountability, and they have the room to act to take the risk. When you look at Downsview Park, you know, two, three, four, five governments all sitting with their little vetoes against each other on a board. Same with the waterfront, you know, two, three, four, five, and then other institutions and agencies all sitting there against them. You look at that and you think, how could you possibly get a good outcome? with that kind of process design. So I think insofar as we care about these things going forward, and I know that there has been discussion about these issues, now even at City Hall, how to have better City Hall operating, process design on the, big, on the big urban issues in Toronto, because that's why we keep going along and not getting anywhere. We'll go back, let's get the process design correct, then, then I think we can do it. And, the, and these, these things show that's possible. Next question. Hi, I'm Sarah Diamond. I'm the new president of the Ontario College of Art and Design. I have to say I was drawn to Toronto because of its cultural moment. Um, and we like to think that we, one, kicked off the architectural revolution. <laughs> and also that we have um, a tremendous responsibility in educating the next generation of artists and designers for Toronto. And, um, along those lines, um, one of the things that we're looking at in our institution is the challenge of cultural diversity, both its power and also how to really make our institution representative of the richness that this city is. So my question for you um, is, how do you see really shifting in some ways, or perhaps you do represent diverse audiences, but how do you see opening up major cultural institutions to um, the 
kind of wealth of diversity of, of the city and what are some of your strategies that go hand in hand with the capital campaigns and the new programs? Um, well, your question is a big question in our profession. It's um, not one that we, uh, in a sense, create and it's not one that our generation is going to solve, which is to say how do you invite communities into a major public institution and make them feel part of it. The analysis you can do is that there are two ways to achieve that. One is through the change of the content, and the other is the change to the um, invitation to interpret within your institutions. At the AGO, our content will change slowly, incrementally, by virtue of the extraordinary uh, collection of African art given to us by Murray Frum an extraordinary collection of African Aboriginal art, which will immediately put into the collecting mix of an essentially European-based institution the questions of tradition, of cultural difference, and then to issues of interpretation. But more broadly, the question for me is, given that that is a slow process and in some ways should be because you want to change your institution by bringing people along in a sustained way, leadership positions and all the rest, um, uh, that you want clear invitations to the act of interpretation. You want your communities in their broadest definition to feel as though that the issue is no longer one simply of access, but of interpretation, of, tr of publicly declaring what it is that those objects mean in a cultural mosaic like Toronto. And we're working pretty intensively now at working out the programs that will allow the AGO to be quite transparent, to overuse that word, in that act of interpretation, a clear invitation. I think one of the strengths of the festival and the organization has always been the fact that we truly reflect the multicultural nature of the city. Um, just because we show so many international films, we're truly a reflection, I think, of what the city has turned into. And ironically, um, and it's not just the festival, I think it's all our programming, I think we're, de we're dealing with issues, other, other issues in terms of our board of directors and the staff um, relating to diversity. But curiously, I think being last to the table of, of the major cultural projects forced us to go down a different road in terms of the communities that we were going to try to access for money. And um, I think this is probably true a little bit of, of William and, and uh, of Matthew in terms of their fundraising, but we haven't been able to go to the traditional, traditional sources. Uh, so we're, we're spending an enormous amount of time in the Asian community, for instance. Um, people that ha have perhaps a different sense of the city have a different sense of what film means to them as well. It's not one of the traditional art forms, it's one of the new art forms. Um, so I think they're just more open to, um, to our approaches. So that's, we've just been in an in, in ad advantageous way forced down that road. I would just say that in, in, in a case, you know, we couldn't do our, our project if we didn't have all these cultural communities helping us to do it. Uh, we have the luxury of the collections, many of which I said are stranded and invisible. So in doing this, we have the South Asian uh, initiative, we have the Japan initiative, we have the China initiative, we have the Africa initiative. These are all organized both as con consulting on what we're doing with these galleries and programs and endowments for curators and all the rest but raising the money for them as well. So you'll see 80 people turn up under Rita Tsang, who leads the, the China Initiative for the Chinese galleries. You'll, you'll see 50 people turn up uh, under the Japan Initiative, chaired by the uh, head of Toyota Canada. You'll see 150 people tur turn up for the South Asia Initiative for cocktail parties, for uh, uh, um, 
information sessions on the galleries and fundraising and all the rest. So we, we, we're already, uh, because of the nature of the collections, uh, uh, rooted in these communities and, uh, and that's just going to deepen. It's a, it's a natural fit, really. You know, it's, I, I said to our people, uh, to our board, or one of our things last year, it's as though, it's as though the ROM were waiting for Toronto to find it in the terms of the diversification of Toronto. The ROM came here, and these collections were seen as rather strange and uh, odd things from all over the world, curiosities in the early century, part of the century. Now, uh, those cultures are living down the street. And so, you know, the, this, the, the ROM was waiting, and Toronto has found it in, its, in all of its diversity. It's a, it's a perfect match. We have time for one more question. Bluma Appel. You can do it from there. Uh, when I've spoken to some people in the States, they have always asked me, or told me, it's madness to put all of these organizations out there for fundraising at exactly the same time. I've answered them, but I want to know if it's the truth. <laughs> <laughs> But you tend to give it to them all because they're all there like kids who are maybe not the first on the block. That's the first thing. And then it's, do you have a sense of competing with each other? My answer to that is, was, this is a renaissance partnership. We have no competition. Now, is that true? <laughs> <laughs> so let me, let me restate that question for those of you who didn't hear, hear in perhaps slightly a shorter form. Um, um, is it madness to all be out on the street raising the same money at the same time? And two, do you compete? So I'll ask all three to answer and then... Yeah. Well, I don't really compete, but I can't remember the name of the guy at the end. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, ans the answer is... And I do some fast talking with Bluma today, too. <laughs> um, the, an the answer is, of course, we compete, right? And that's what's going to make us great, right? William's sitting here thinking his building's going to be the best, and Piers is thinking the same, and I'm thinking the same. And that's what you hear is the passion. Bruce is an incredible architect, right? I think Frank Gehry's an incredible architect. You know, like, you can play it anyway. That's why we're passionate. That's why it's going to work. That's why... It's all magically going to happen. But to the first point, I don't actually think that that competition restricts the generosity of our community. I think that's palpably true, evident, dot, dot, dot. What I would say generally, um, including to some people in this room who have been generous to a number of the projects, people are giving more than they expected to give. People are finding that there's an excitement. And... Um, and, and I may even talk to you again, Bluma. <laughs> but but uh, the, 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 the point is that the proposition is unassailable. And to that degree, there, I think that um, the putting us all in the marketplace has not been a bad thing at all. Yeah, I think critical mass has been phenomenal. I think if there was one project going out there at this point in time, it would look like be a small dent in a funny way. I mean, it would be a big project. But the fact that you've got virtually every single cultural institution in the city right now doing something really exciting, that's an explosion. That I, I, perhaps it says something about just the, the, where we are as a city, where we are as a culture, and the age of some of these institutions, um, what their aspirations are, what they're trying to, to accomplish. I think the city is, is clearly ready for this as well. Uh, I think the audience, the public, the public is there for it. There's this kind of hunger, and I think we, 
I mean, the, the timing was, um, uh, we all kind of arrived at this, this timing naturally. It wasn't that we just f decided to follow each other. It was just it was ready for our organization. I think it was absolutely ready for the two other people here. And in terms of competition, it's, it's ironic, and perhaps because the festival again sort of stands aside from the, the, the other traditional uh, cultural agencies, I don't really feel in competition with them at all. Uh-uh. Um, <laughs> and the great thing in the city is that all of the people who are running the organizations, directors like uh, Matthew and William, I think we all really admire each other, um, very collegial actually. It's a terrific uh, moment for all of us running these, these organizations, as Matthew said at the very beginning, just because there's this kind of shared sense of values, which I feel very, very strongly. It's not about economic impact. I mean, it's not about, um, it, it's about things that are much more intangible. I mean, Matthew spoke so well to this, the connection of an audience to a curator. And you know, when I try to justify what I do as, as, a, as a director of this organization, it really is, a, it's about the magic of film. It's about something that is much more than entertainment, much more, you know, much more deeper, much more profound. And um, I, I think that all of us share that, that sense of, of total commitment to our art form and to our institutions. You know, direct answer there, Blue, I'd say it would have been madness to spread it out over 25 years and deal out one thing after another and not, and not really get this great wave of attention. And also, as Matthew and, and Pierce has said, there's an, an element of competition and comparison and, and who's doing what is good for everybody. It gets dialogue going. It gets everybody having to think through things. Do I really like that black wall down at that Jack Diamond's building or not? Right? So, it's good. <laughs> it's good. The second thing about the fundraising side is, the second thing about the fundraising side is that, you know, Michael Lee Chin, Jim and Louise Temerty, uh, these are people, uh, uh, Jack Cockwell, chair of our trustees, People are coming forward, we're reaching out and going beyond all the typical families that used to gather around these institutions. And we're reaching all kinds of new communities because we have to and because they're, they're part of the city too. And as a matter of fact, the one thing that's really amazed me is that, is that you start finding that people are saying, how can I get involved in these institutions? I want to be part of these. Who, who I, and, and I've always felt in, um, kind of the intimidated about going down and getting involved in them. Now they're, now they're trying to find us. They're, you get calls from people saying, these people want to get involved. How do you do that? So uh, it's, it's, not, uh, it's, it's not that we're all competing around that old uh, gang anymore. Mm -hmm. It's that the, that circle is growing very, very quickly. And I think it's a wonderful testament, again, to the nature of uh, Ontario. Absolutely. You'll see a lot of overlapping gifts to all of them from, from, from major donors. Thank you, everyone. And I particularly want to thank our three speakers today. Um, I, I hope you get a sense of the incredible excitement, not only in each of their uh, projects, but in what's going on in this city right now. And all three of them will be here for a few minutes to accept your checks. Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> and your volunteer assignments. So thank you again.